whether you're married or single today, I just want to ask to listen to my words as, as somebody who's human and inadequate. But I want you to allow God to speak to you whatever he might need to say to you. And I'm also real, really aware of the diversity of single people that could be in this room right now. Some of you are single because of the death of a spouse. Unexpectedly, you find yourself having the challenges of, of these feelings that you didn't anticipate. Some of you in this room are single because of divorce. And, and you've been through some amazing emotional turmoil uh, in the last several years. In either case, having experienced life as a married person you now have to adjust yourself back to being a single person. Now, others of you are single and you've never been married before. And maybe you'd like to get married in the future. Maybe you're putting off getting married because you really want to establish yourself occasionally. Or maybe you just haven't found the right person yet. Or maybe you've chosen a single life deliberately. Maybe you want to devote devote yourself more fully to a career or, or to a ministry. Some people choose to remain single because they struggle with their sexual identity. Some people may even have seen destructive marriages growing up. And so they've made a conscious decision, I'm not going to get married because I don't want to put myself through what I watch mom and dad go through. So there's lots of diversity in this business of singleness. People experience it differently in their 20s, and then in their 30s, and then in their 40s, and and then, then so on. Now, my assignment today, I don't think, is to help you tackle having a full, you know, vocationally, relationally, and spiritually complete life. Or to make married people aware of, you know, the fact that uh, you can be fulfilled even though you're single. My task isn't to just stop married people from saying stupid things like, why aren't you married? Because that sounds like, why aren't you normal? But I think my goal today is to contrast 21st century sexual myths with what I would call the new sexual ethic. It's with what God says about our sexuality and his intent for it, and what society says, which is just as long as you have two consulting, uh, consenting adults, you know, anything goes. But I have this sense that in our hearts, we we have this feeling that Scripture might say something a little differently. And so that's where I want to start at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18. If you have your study notes, you can follow along. There are three things that are too wonderful to me, four that I do not understand. Now, take a quick time out there. Whenever an author in the Bible starts out with one number, but then he changes it to another number, he really wants you to focus on that last number. That's the point he's trying to make. There are three, yeah, there's four, and you better get the fourth. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the sea, and the way of a man with a woman. You know, And partly because our society seems so obsessed with sex, it sometimes seems that the message of the church on this subject has been, no, bad, don't. And so wisdom starts here, that sex is God's invention. And we ought to praise God for the sheer genius of this part of his creation. You know, going back to Nate's comments last week from Genesis, creation, that was good. Men and women, that was very good, you know. And and unfortunately, what the church has, has done is it hasn't always taught this very well. You know, between the 3rd and the 10th centuries, the church issued some edicts that forbid, that forbid husbands and wives from having sex on Thursdays because that was the day that Jesus was arrested. 
And then on Fridays, because that was the day of his death. And then on Sundays, because not it was the day of his resurrection, but that was to commemorate the saints. And then eventually, and maybe there was this kind of sexual suspicion, no sexual relations between husband and wives during the 40 days of Lent. And then during the 40 days of Advent. And then they threw in the 40 days of Pentecost. And they kept adding all these feast days and holidays to the, to the list to where Philip Yancey writes that in order to follow the church's rules, only 44 days were available for marital sex. And I can hear some of you thinking, wow, that sounds like a nightmare. And others of you are thinking, where can I get one of those calendars? You know, but, uh, but please, I want you to understand, that was not God's intent. He didn't put Adam and Eve on the 44-day plan. In contrast to that, look at Proverbs 5, verse 18. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. And may you ever be captivated by her love. I can guarantee you that they never read that when I was a boy in church. That was probably because we didn't have children's church. And... uh, And if you think that's pretty frank, you ought to read the Song of Solomon. I mean, he starts north and goes south very fast. It is a celebration of God's gift of sexuality. And I think that I'm going to ask Nate to preach on that book while I'm on vacation this summer. So, uh, but, but something, something else that I love about Proverbs is that it's not just for young couples. He says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And the idea here is that God's plan for a husband and wife is not just gritting your teeth and putting up with marriage for 50 years. It says rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that that leads us to something a little more serious now. And it would be great if the only comments that the Bible had about sexuality that we needed to talk about were those where we celebrate sex. But they're not. And because sexuality is just such a great gift, and it's such a powerful gift, and it gets so mishandled and misunderstood and very destructive, I think we need to spend a little time dispelling some of the myths about sex. You know what an urban legend is? It's something that's told over and over and over again until the point that people actually believe it's true. I went on uh, Googled urban legends this past week. You cannot believe some of the things that people believe are true, but they've, they've shown that indeed they're not true. And so today what I'd like to do is, is kind of dispel some of the folklore or the hoaxes or the fallacies or misinformation about sex. So here's, here's my myths. First of all, myth number one. The new sexual ethic says that sex is just a physical thing. It's just two bodies. Sex is just simply a physical appetite that you ought to gratify, just like you do any other appetite. You're thirsty, you get something to drink. You're hungry, you get something to eat. You feel a little sexual desire, then you should satisfy the appetite that you have for that. It's just a physical thing between two consenting adults. Some of you are too young to remember this, but I'm kidding. But uh, Robert Redford was in this movie called Indecent Proposal. I can't believe that that movie came out in 1993. It just seems so so more current. But in the movie, Demi Moore and and, uh, Woody Harrelson are a couple that go to Las Vegas, and they're really down financially. And Robert Redford's a millionaire, and he offers a million dollars if she will sleep with him. And so Woody Harrelson and, and Demi Moore are kind of discussing this and trying to figure out whether or not this is something they should do. And here's the line that really intrigued me. She says, I'm just giving him my body, not my soul. 
The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach's for food. But God will destroy both of them. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I think the Corinthians came up with a little phrase. They go, hey, food for the stomach, stomach for food, sex for the body, the body for sex. But verse 15, Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. One translation says, may it never be. Do you not know that he who writes, uh, who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Now listen, I know when we think of the word prostitute, we think of somebody down on, what's that street in, in L.A.? Uh, uh, how did you know? Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but... Uh, but listen, to prostitute something, think about it, is to use something in a way other than it was intended to be used. You know, you can prostitute the intention of a screwdriver by using it in a, in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. The, the Clippers, until this year, had prostituted basketball. They had, they had played it in a way other than it was intended to be played, you know. And uh, so, but, but listen, but verse 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. There's a great story in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph is serving as a servant in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is the head of all the army of Egypt. And Potiphar's wife says that that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And she came and said, lie with me. Baby is implied in the Hebrew. And, uh, And he would not lie with her or be beside her. And one day she grabbed him by his coat and said, lie with me. And he left his coat in her hand and he ran. That's what flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God or glorify God with your body. Now, I don't think if we had a communion table, I don't think that anybody would think about coming and having sex with their their boyfriend or girlfriend on the communion table. You say, well, why would you even bring that up? Because that's not where Christ dwells. He dwells in you. And every time you commit an immoral act, you drag Jesus Christ into that act with you. You might as well do it on the communion table. You've brought him right into it. And that's what he's saying here. Honor God with your bodies. Friends, body and soul are, are not detachable. You can't separate them. You can't give your body without giving your soul. And this gets to the heart of the difference between Christianity and the new sexual ethic. The Bible teaches that we're not simply made to transmit our, our gene pool to the next pool to the next generation. You know, we're something more than that. You're a human being, a moral agent created in the image of God. You're made to know and to be known by Him, and our bodies cry out for intimacy because our souls cry out for intimacy. And so we long to be touched and embraced and hugged because that goes right to the core of who we are. And the reason for promiscuity and other forms of misbehavior is that we're fallen and we're trying to satisfy a legitimate desire. My dad put it this way, we seek what is good, but we often seek it in destructive and harmful and even in evil ways. But that's not how God designed it in the first place. 
Nate described that last week for us. If you missed last week, you ought to go online and listen to his message. God intended sex to be the ultimate physical expression of intimacy and commitment, which is deeply spiritual. And when you have sex with another human being, in a really, in a really true sense, you've just given them your soul. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just bodies connecting. It touches the deepest part of who you are. It's a spiritual reality, and therefore the Bible teaches that sexual intimacy should be reserved for marriage. And so if you're not married to someone, then keep your hands off their soul. (laughs) All right, number two. Sex is such a powerful drive, I just can't control it. You know, my need for sex is so overwhelming that I'm really not responsible for my behavior. I just can't help myself, you know. And this gets communicated a lot. And some of you may have used that rationalization yourself. I've heard people, you know, say, you know, uh, and they use this as a way of breaking down somebody else's resistance. This drive is just so powerful. It's making me literally crazy. You know, I just, I'm going to explode if I don't have it. And I say, give me a break. I mean, your sexual organs don't control you. You have something called will. I'll give you a quick example of this. Let's say you meet a beautiful woman someplace. She bats her big blue eyes at you. And things are really starting to cook. And you go back to her place and you're just getting intimate. Right at that moment, she says, by the way, before we do this, you should know that I have every sexually transmittable disease known to mankind. Plus, my father is your boss and he's so protective of me that I, he's been known to be homicidal. You know, What are the odds... At that moment, you're going to say, I don't care. This desire is just too strong. It's out of control. Let's go ahead anyway. I don't think you'd do that. In fact, at that moment, I think that you would discover reserves of self-control that would make Billy Graham look like a slacker. You know, you have self-control and you have will. And the question is, will you exercise it? You know, and I'll tell you something else. Don't wait until that moment of intense passion to decide what your values and boundaries are going to be, because if you do that, you waited too long. Ben Young and Sam Adams have written a great book. I would commend it to anybody who's single here. It's called The One, A Realist Guide to Choosing a Soulmate. Listen to what they write. Nothing interferes with logic and common sense more than the sex drive. For years, we referred to this as the brain relocation phenomenon which occurs when you are very passionate about someone and you start to get intimate. Here's how it works. Once the hormones kick in, the brain dislodges from the skull and slowly moves down the body through the neck, shoulders, chest, stomach, and finally below the waist. This process takes 10 to 20 minutes for a woman, but three seconds for a man. (laughs) But that's probably why they say we're like microwaves and you're like crockpots. But... uh, uh, But once it happens, they write, it's too late. You're thinking and reasoning with your hormones instead of your brain. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, for each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, I think this has to do with the law of diminishing returns. Uh, but not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we have told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live holy lives, or to live a holy life. Friends, you're a moral agent, and God created you with a will. And you have to decide ahead of time. If you're going to be a Christ follower, this is God's will for you, your sexual purity. And if you're here today and, you, and you're just seeking, you, you don't have a relationship with Christ right now, I think this is something for you to think about. But if you claim to follow Christ, you decide right now, I will honor God. I will respect other people and myself and my future spouse if, if there's going to be one. I will. And also it means that I will be intentional about engaging in behaviors that lead to such a level of arousal that I just can't go back. To be, to be careful about the kinds of things that I read and what I watch because you can't immerse yourself in sexually loaded material and not pay the consequences for it. And if you're engaging in those behaviors with someone who you're not married to, stop it! <laughs> it will be one of the most difficult things you ever decide to do. It will take prayer and accountability and wisdom and courage. It's going to test your character. But if you wait until you're with that person again at that level of passion, you'll have waited too long. So decide right now. Myth number three. This is commonly heard as kind of a defense for why folks want to live together before they get married. And this myth says we need to assess our sexual compatibility before we get married. This is sometimes called the test drive theory of premarital sex. The idea is you wouldn't buy a car unless you had test driven it beforehand, you need to take it out on a drive. Living together is kind of the relational version of buying a car. Now, in in the book, Ben Young has this thing called the Ten Commandments of Dating, and he talks about when, when you cut right through all this stuff, what the real reason is why people live together without getting married or why why they're sexually active before being married, one reason he suggests is fear. People read the statistics on divorce. Maybe their parents experienced it, and they say to themselves, I don't want to go through that. And so they think it's safer to live together. Then if it doesn't work out, they have an escape hatch. Now, here's the problem. You can't live together, and you can't share physical intimacy without creating a deep, not just a physical, but an emotional and spiritual bond. And once that happens, when you leave, your experience will be that of like ripping apart. If you ever saw the commercial for super glue years ago, they took super glue and they put two four-by-fours together and they took these Jeeps and they tried to pull the, 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 the two four-by-fours apart. And the glue was stronger than the wood. And it just splintered the wood as, as these cars pulled these, tried to pull these things apart. And that's what happens. Sex is not just something you come together physically. When you come apart from it, it just rips you in so many other areas of your life. And you take that into your next relationship as well. And another reason why people live together, I think, is frankly, you know, sex. It makes sex more convenient. And often, I think, marriage gets dangled as the, as the carrot. As soon as I graduate, as soon as things settle down, as soon as the finances get straightened out, as soon as the therapist says I'm healthy enough, as soon as, and weeks turn into months and turn into years, and living together is really a way of saying, I love you deeply and I want to experience the ultimate expression of intimacy and vulnerability with you, and if things get tough, I want to be able to leave. 
I think the third reason why couples sometimes live together and are involved sexually before marriage is manipulation. I've seen this a lot in some of my counseling. If guys move in for convenient sex, women, not always, but often move in to manipulate or to maneuver a man into marriage. They trade sex for the hope that one day they'll get to walk down the aisle. The idea is, if I give sex, he'll give me the intimacy that I crave. And I'll tell you honestly, when you give unconditional intimacy for conditional commitment, it is a setup for disaster. The test drive theory or myth of secular research and social sciences backs all this up. One study I read showed that couples that live together before marriage have an 80% greater likelihood of getting divorced than couples who don't live together before marriage. Now, who would walk into marriage intentionally, knowingly, crippling their chances at success? Women in cohabitating situations are twice as likely to be physically abused, and they're four times more likely to experience depression than women who are married. Now, who would set themselves up for that? But people do. You know, I've never had a couple come to me and say, we're married, we're deeply in love, we're deeply committed to each other, but our sexual incompatibility is just ruining our relationship. It hasn't happened, but, but I've known many couples who were devastated because they got the order wrong, and then somebody bailed. I was thinking about the various ceremonies that we have in the life of the church. We have baptism, we have marriage, we have communion. I don't know if you've ever wondered about why there's not a ceremony for couples who move in together. You know, Because at the heart of every ceremony, there's a promise. There's a vow. There's a, a commitment. You know, Parents say, we will raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. New Christians say, I will follow Christ and serve Him. You know, Married couples say, I take you until death do us part. At communion, we'll say, I believe in Jesus Christ and, and I proclaim his, left, his death by eating this bread and drinking this cup. I proclaim his death until he comes. It's a commitment of my following him. But at the heart of living together, what we're really saying is, I'll take this one, I'll take this man or this woman, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, until someone better comes along, or until the sexual excitement level is no longer really, really, really high, or until there's a difficult problem where I just don't feel like dealing with it. And a whole lot of research simply confirms what the Scriptures have always taught. Ultimate intimacy is to be reserved for ultimate commitment. Here's another myth, and it goes like this. Once I get married, it will solve all my sexual desires and difficulties. And if you're married, I know you're agreeing with me on this. I remember when I was single, I had the, I had all the struggles, by the way, of sexual purity that, that you have when you're single. And I remember thinking to myself, if I can just hang on until I get married, because when I get married, every night is going to be an unending, unending fantasy land. That was, that was how I viewed marriage. And then I got married. And there are times, wonderful times of connectedness and intimacy, and then there are other times. And all my married friends about here will say this. There are moments of connection that are unbelievably deep and wonderful. And then there are moments when it's work. You know, there are all kinds of complicating things that come into marital relationships. But you need to understand this. A lot of times when people think about sex, one of their misunderstandings is that God's only commandment for husbands and wives is to avoid adultery. 
They think if I can just get to the end of my life and I've avoided adultery, then I've obeyed God's command relative to marriage. That's not the deal. You know, Nate laid it out for us last week. It's the central text from Genesis. God's intent, His design, is that the two shall become one flesh. And what that means is if you're a husband or if you're a wife, your spouse, they're responsible for their part of the deal. And I'm responsible for mine. And the greatest, to the greatest extent, with God's help, my job is to achieve oneness of heart and mind and soul, and for that to be expressed in physical intimacy with my wife. Let me just say to some of you married couples, maybe there are some issues relative to your past that you still need to be working on. That's a very important part of marital life, and some of you need to take another step in that direction of oneness and intimacy. And, and there's some great resources out there. Now, there's a myth that I've, that if I've not had sexual intercourse before marriage or not slept with anyone other than my spouse, I've never sinned sexually. And I'm jumping down to number six, and I'll, I'll come back to five in just a second. In Jesus' day, uh, there were certain religious people who considered themselves really spiritual. They kind of divided the world into two kinds of people. Sexual sinners were the bad guys, and those who had not committed sexual sin were the good guys. And this is part of why Jesus made his famous statement. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery or do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at another woman with lust in his heart or her heart, or looks lustfully at another, one translation says, has already committed adultery in their heart. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can get self-righteous because you've avoided sexual sin, but don't kid yourself. Look at your heart. Look at your secret thoughts and your secret desires. You may be able to hide it from everybody else, but there is sexual brokenness and junk inside of every one of us. And you know it and God knows it. You know, Maybe it's past behavior. Maybe it's present behavior. Maybe it's lustful thoughts. Maybe it's allowing your self-esteem to be based on your sexual attractiveness. Maybe it's withholding sex and marriage from your spouse. Maybe it's fantasizing about somebody else's marriage or somebody else's relationship. Just because you've avoided certain behaviors or certain sins, don't kid yourself. It's a universal deal. You know, All of us have fallenness and junk in us sexually. We all need God's help. We all need grace. Jesus' point is, anybody who thinks they're sexually perfect, that they don't need repentance, they ought to think again, because we're all in the same boat. So finally, back up to number five. Sexual sin is unforgivable sin. Some of you have have sinned against, been sinned against in highly destructive ways. Maybe you've been sexually abused. And there are some of you here today who I think maybe wrestle with addiction issues or with sexually compulsive behavior, and it's killing you. And it destroys your ability to pray, and it keeps you from, from God, and it makes you feel guilty. And you identify with David in Psalm 32 when he says, When I kept silent about my sin, I wasted away. My strength was sapped. 
In fact, the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And yet one night he sees Sheba taking a bath. That's where she got the nickname Bathsheba. And you can read all about that in in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And he takes another man's wife and he gets her pregnant and he has her husband killed and he takes her as his wife. And now he feels dirty and he wants to be clean. He feels guilty and he wants to be forgiven. His relationship with God has been broken and he wants it to be restored. And I think his prayer of confession is a great model for anyone who wants to experience forgiveness for sexual sin. And that includes everyone in this room. I commend Psalm 51 to you. I had a college girl ask me after one of the FCA Bible studies I was speaking at. She said, do you think that God can forgive me for some sexual issues that she had been doing? And I told her the issue is not can God forgive you. The issue is do you want what he has to offer you? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.2, I love this verse, God made Him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, He already has forgiven you. The issue is, do you want it? You've got to decide if you want that author. And when you come to Jesus, you've come to the right person. Psalm 51.10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain myself. Now, those of you who are single, and you're seeking hard to honor God with your sexuality in a world that, you know, the pressure is just not to do that. It's relentless, you know be sexually active, and and where the rest of the world is just going in the opposite direction, and it just takes so much work and so much prayer to go upstream in a downstream world, I just want to say to you on behalf of our church, you are not crazy. To seek and follow Jesus Christ with your body and with the choices that you're making is a noble and pleasing thing to God. And I hope that this church will always be a place where you will feel honored and celebrated and embraced. And I just want to say it again. You're not crazy. And friends, the broader body here, we are not a community where some people are healthy and superior and righteous and other folks are messed up. We are all sinners in need of grace. And people with all kinds of sexual histories and problems and failures came to Jesus. And he never was embarrassed by it. And he never turned anyone away. And he never gave up on anybody. And he's not going to start with you. And that's good news. So, there you have it. Some of God's wisdom on sexuality. And we'll be picking up more of this in the next couple of weeks as we continue this series. But listen to what the Bible says. It's not in your notes. Romans 3.22 The righteousness from God comes from faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. In other words, no matter who you are or what you've done, God wants you to experience His forgiveness. There is no sin that lacks His power to forgive. There's no regret that you walked into this room with that He lacks the power to redeem. God wants you to have a relationship with Him so badly, and He's done all He could do to make it possible by paying for your your penalty, your debt on the cross. And if you don't understand this, then your foundation right from the beginning is going to be faulty about everything else in your life. 
Everything he does, he does out of love toward you. Even his demand of limitations is for your own protection. So would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, I know there are some people right now who are struggling with memories from a past that is just painful. Would you bring cleansing? And there are folks right now who are in the grip of a habit of something that is just messing them up. Would you bring release and freedom? And there are some who have been battling. Some who are wounded, hurt. Some are scarred. Some have felt betrayed. They've been betrayed. Would you bring healing? And Father, would you make us a church community where healing and chaste lives become a real possibility in pretty much a sexually insane world? And just while we're battling an attitude of prayer, maybe you're here today and you realize that you've never asked Christ to forgive and lead your life. And perhaps in the quietness of your heart right now, you might say something like, God, I I want to acknowledge the root of my problem. I admit that I've been trying to live my life without you. I've made a lot of mistakes, and yes, I've sinned. And I ask you to forgive me. And I want to believe that you can change me. And so as much as I know how, I commit myself to you. Help me to understand it more. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Put joy back in my life. Give me the want to and the how to power to do it. I open my life to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.